Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us this week. Got a lot to talk about. You know, everybody knows that the first step towards solving a crisis is to admit that you have a problem. And a little more than a year ago, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops did that in response to the fact that only 70% of Catholics, 70% of Catholics currently attend Sunday Mass and especially in recognition of the statistic that 70% of practicing Catholics do not believe the Church's doctrine regarding the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And so to combat this problem, the bishops called for a two-year Eucharistic revival that will culminate in a National Eucharistic Congress in July of next year. Now, whatever the result, I suspect that the Eucharistic revival will be proclaimed a great success and indisputably a great work of the Holy Spirit. Say, the real question for me is how to quantify that success. You know, will it be a success if if millions of Catholics come back to Mass and Holy Communion? (laughs) I hope they do. That'd be great. You know, I often speak of how the numbers uh, of those attending the traditional Mass are the only sector in the church today that's growing. And the traditional Latin Mass does attract fallen away Catholics. But realistically, this growing number is largely comprised of faithful Catholics who are already attending Sunday Mass. Eric Sammons recently wrote an article for Crisis Magazine about the growing numbers uh, who attend the annual Eucharistic procession in his native Cincinnati. And while at the same time, though, the raw numbers of Catholics there are falling and and continue to fall, you know, those that attend Sunday Mass, more and more local parishes are permanently closing their doors. In other words, there is a palpable movement towards orthopraxy amongst some practicing Catholics but the overall numbers continue to shrink. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, that statistic that prompted the Eucharistic revival was that 70% of practicing Novus Ordo Catholics do not believe in the church's doctrine on the real presence. And it's interesting to note that just a couple of weeks ago, the, uh, the Eucharistic revival email that I signed up for claimed that according to the latest statistics, 60% of practicing Catholics do believe in the real presence. But as Mark Twain famously said, there are lies and there are damn lies and there are statistics. You see, the question is the question. When practicing Catholics were offered a multiple choice answer to the question, what does the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist mean? 70% of them chose the Eucharist is a symbolic reminder of Jesus rather than the, the, doc, the true doctrine, which is that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So my point is, though, if you simply ask those Catholics, do you believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist? They would say yes, or at least 60% of them. They believe in the real presence. Unfortunately, what they think that the real presence means that uh, Jesus is only there as a symbol. So the problem is that they are either ignorant of or do not understand or simply do not accept the doctrine of transubstantiation. And apparently this represents the majority of practicing Novus Ordo Catholics, that is, Catholics who regularly receive Holy Communion at uh, uh, the ordinary form Mass on Sunday. And I can pretty much guarantee that those same 70% of practicing Catholics do not regularly go to confession. And why does that matter? Well, because when the priest holds up the host and says the body of Christ, and the communicant responds, Amen, that Amen means that he or she accepts what the Church teaches about the real presence. And if they do not, then that communion is a sacrilege. Or on the other hand, if they do believe, but live the rest of the week as if there is no God, then it's still a sacrilege. 
So my point is that in regard to the Eucharistic revival, the vast number of sacrilegious communions is the elephant in the room. As Father Bill Casey once said, go to a typical uh, parish and compare the lines for confession on Saturday with the lines for communion on Sunday. He says, well, we either have a greater volume of saints in the church than ever before, or there are many, many sacrilegious communions. You know, it was Pope Pius X who really promoted frequent communion for the laity in a sincere belief that it would predispose Catholics to greater holiness because frequent communion would require that they necessarily uh, take pains to remain constantly in a state of grace in order to worthily approach Holy Communion, which the, the frequent reception of would, would uh, impart to them an ongoing increase of grace and produce an army of saints in the process. Now, there were plenty of voices uh, among the clergy who sounded the alarm of the inherent danger expressed in the adage, familiarity breeds contempt. And so Pope Pius X specifically stipulated that frequent communion, which at the time primarily meant receiving every Sunday, although he certainly envisioned increase of daily communicants, but he stipulated that frequent communions must be worthy communions and that the Blessed Sacrament should never be approached out of human respect or through mere routine. See, to make a, a worthy communion, you must uh, believe yourself to be in a state of grace. You, you must not be conscious of, of any mortal sins. And, and today, more than 50 years after the imposition of the Novus Ordo Mise, virtually, virtually every Catholic who goes to Mass goes to communion. Whether he attends Mass every Sunday or not, whether he ever goes to confession or not. So when Pope Paul VI imposed the Novus Ordo Mise, he was convinced that the use of the vernacular would help Catholics understand their faith. Unfortunately, the committee that he put in charge of fabricating the new Mass were pretty much absolutely dedicated to eliminating so-called negative theology from the liturgy. So they removed from the prayers and the readings of the Novus Ordo Mise nearly all mention of sin, and, and sin is the greatest evil, and God's judgment, and God's wrath, etc. And we can see the result. 80% of Catholics do not fulfill their Sunday obligation at all. Many years ago, I taught a confirmation class. Um, my wife had gotten pregnant with, I don't remember, if it was number five or number four, but she had been teaching confirmation, and, and so she had to, to bow out because she was very pregnant when the, the class came around. She asked me to take uh, you know, her place, and I did. And being the only male teacher, I was given the class of kids that had not darkened the door of a church since their first communion. Now, uh, the nun in charge of the program told us a couple of weeks in to be sure that the children were going to Sunday Mass and to, to be sure that they're receiving Holy Communion. And I said to sister, well, if we're going to encourage them to go to communion and they haven't and they don't go to mass every Sunday, we're going to have to get them to confession first. And she said, oh, no, no, no. We'll talk about confession during Lent. And the idea that these kids would be making, you know, sacrilegious communions every week was not even on her radar. I mean, I, you know, to be fair, she may not even have been aware of the teaching herself. Needless to say, I immediately did a class on how to make a good confession and told my kids to meet me at the church on Saturday and we would all go to confession together. Now, Bishop Barron, who impassioned, whose 
impassioned bishop conference speech about the 70% prompted this Eucharistic revival in the first place. Um, you know, he's written a book called The Eucharist that's been very popular. And he's also written a, a small book called This Is My Body, A Call to Eucharistic Revival. Word on Fire is making it available to parishes at, you know, two bucks a piece. And to date, they've distributed over a million copies, close to a million point three. So as you would expect, that book says many good and edifying things. And Bishop Barron quotes St. Paul's admonition from 1 Corinthians 11, 28 and 20, or 27 and 28. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. A person should examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And, and Bishop Barron says that communion is of no help to a person who receives in a state of mortal sin. And he likens it to how, to how food is of no use to a dead body. But he does not go into any great detail on the danger to one's eternal salvation that's associated with sacrilegious communion. Eats and drinks judgment. It is a mortal sin to receive the sacrament unworthily. Hence the elephant in the room. So back to my original question, how will we know if the Eucharistic revival is really a success? Well, in my humble opinion, even if not one more person uh, returns to Sunday Mass, there would still be a sure sign of success of the Eucharistic revival if local parish churches have to you know, double the availability for confession because so many Catholics are seeking sacramental absolution. See, I think the thing we need to revive is the negative theology that was taken out of the uh, Novus Ordo Mass. So Catholics will understand the need for confession. And pastors need to encourage regular confession as well as frequent communion and explain how to make a good examination of conscience and explain to the folks that missing Mass through your own fault is itself a mortal sin. I'll put it plainly, there will be no Eucharistic revival without a revival of the sense of sin and the need for absolution. And that's no nonsense. Okay, coming up, a lot of stuff to talk about today. This coming Sunday is the Feast of Christ the King in the Church's traditional liturgical calendar. And this is not to be confused with the Solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, which is celebrated on the last Sunday of the liturgical year in the Novus Ordo. And when we come back, we'll talk about the difference but the original Feast of Christ the King is celebrated on the final Sunday of October for a particular reason, because it's the Sunday before All Saints Day. Now, as you know, the 31st of October is All Hallows' Eve, because the 1st of November is All Hallows' Day, a.k.a. All Saints' Day. And this is the day set aside to give special honor to the Church triumphant, that is, to the, to the saints in heaven. November 2nd is All Souls' Day, which was instituted by the Church to remind us to pray for the Church suffering. That is, for all the faithful departed who are in purgatory. And I will explain the connection to the Feast of Christ the King after these messages. All right? So stay with us. Off to a good start on this edition of No Nonsense Catholic. We'll be back with more right after these messages.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Before the break, we're talking about why the Feast of Christ the King, the original Feast of Christ the King, was celebrated at, on the last Sunday of October, right before All Saints and All Souls Day, right before this special time of honoring the Church triumphant and the Church suffering. And the reason was to celebrate the Church militant, the faithful on earth who are fighting the good fight of faith under the banner of Jesus Christ, our Heavenly King. The very first celebration of the Feast of Christ the King fell on All Hallows' Eve, 1926, so on the 31st, followed immediately by all saints and all souls, a veritable uh, a triduum for the church militant, triumphant, and suffering. Now, I'd like to read the extraordinary form gospel for the Feast of Christ the King. It's taken from John 18, verses 33 through 37. Pilate, therefore, went into the hall again and called Jesus and said to him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or have others told it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thy own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee up to me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would certainly strive that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from hence. Pilate therefore said to him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. For this was I born, and for this came I into the world, that I should give testimony to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So Jesus came to earth to establish a kingdom. And the outpost of that kingdom is his one holy Catholic and apostolic church. You know, we, we experience the kingdom in a partial way here as the church militant, but in its fullness as the church triumphant. And, and the kingdom on earth is not of earthly origin because it comes from heaven. Jesus is a king who did not conquer lands, but rather conquered hearts. He's a king who conquered not by force, but by the cross. The kingdom of the church is the kingdom of divine truth and grace. It is in the world and for the world, but not of the world, because the object of the church is not a worldly or natural object. You know, as important as worldly and natural objectives may be, the church's object is entirely supernatural. It is the salvation and sanctification of souls. And so the psalmist reminds us, put not your trust in princes, in the children of men in whom there is no salvation. Many of our fellow countrymen fear that we're witnessing the end of American life as we once knew it, and I, you know, they may be right. But even if they are, that's not a cause for despair for Catholics, because we have the promise of Christ that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. And that promise was not made to America or modern democracy, but to the Catholic Church. Earthly kingdoms come and go. It is the church that communicates the saving grace of Christ to our fallen world. And the Catholic Church has outlived every evil empire and endured every persecution devised by wicked men and fallen angels for two millennia. It is a well-known fact of history that the church grows stronger when she's persecuted, even when she's reduced to a remnant. The Word of God tells us not to put our trust in human leaders. Politics will not save the world. Only Jesus can do that, and he does it through his body, the church, 
throughout the ages until he comes in glory. Now, I might point out that Christ's promise also applies to poor leadership within the church. In the words of the great English uh, Catholic historian Hilary Belloc, the Catholic Church is an institution that I am bound to hold divine, but for unbelievers, a proof of its divinity might be found in the fact that no merely human institution conducted with such knavish imbecility would have lasted a fortnight. He <laughs> said that 100 years ago, and things haven't changed much, unless it is that they've gotten worse. Now, the philosophy behind No Nonsense Catholic is to demonstrate that a lot of confusion regarding the church can be cleared up pretty easily if you're not trying to complicate matters. And that while some things are complex or difficult to understand, they don't necessarily have to be the concern of the rank-and-file Catholic. For example, there is a place for highly academic Bible study, and that's precisely amongst academics. The, the truth is you don't need an advanced degree to have a saving faith. As Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson put it, no soul can be lost by following the simple and well-beaten path of ordinary devotion and prayer. You certainly do not have to be a Bible scholar or an expert theologian to go to heaven. And that's the point that seems to get lost in the shuffle of the various concerns amongst the leadership of the church today. So issues like social justice and immigration and climate change and the leadership role of women in the church, not to mention uh, women's ordination. Communion for the divorced and remarried, blessing homosexual unions, the whole synod and sodality. Yeah, I know. I was thinking when, too. I'm sorry. You know what, uh, Richie? I, I don't know if people are hearing it or not, but you've got an open mic in the studio that's in my headphones. So if you can uh, go, close that out for me, I'd appreciate it. Okay. Um, we all know, like I say, or should know, that what matters is getting souls to heaven. Yeah. Hence the axiom in canon law, salus anamarum suprema lex. The salvation of souls is the supreme law. That comes first. Um, so um, I suggest that you and I focus our prayers, works, and sacrifices on the salvation of souls and the restoration of the church and not place our faith in material or political solutions. Come what may, let us work for the restoration of the Catholic Church in the same way that we await the return of Christ the King. Not in fear or despair, but in joyful hope. And that's no nonsense. Guys, I'm sorry. Gentlemen in the studio, if you can hear me, there's an open mic in there, and I got your voices in my in my uh, cups here, in my phones, and it's really distracting. So I don't know if it's going out on uh, the broadcast or not. I hope not, but if, if so, or in either case, please uh, close that mic out. Okay. Thanks. I mentioned before that Pope Paul VI did not merely move the Feast of Christ the King from last Sunday in October to the last Sunday in the liturgical year. So he didn't just move it, he actually instituted a new solemnity in its place. Now, for two millennia, Christ and his Holy Church have been at the vanguard of true progress. According to the prophecy of Malachi 1.11, from the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name is great among the Gentiles, and in every place there is sacrifice, and there is offered to my name a clean oblation. Each and every hour of the day, the host and chalice are raised somewhere on the earth. The holy sacrifice is celebrated around the clock and around the globe. In the words of our Lord, the time of fulfillment has arrived and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, in the traditional Latin Mass, we will celebrate the Feast of Christ the King this coming Sunday, which is the last Sunday of October. 
And before we go any further, I want to give a little history. Uh, in Catholic terms, the Feast of Christ the King is still brand spanking new. It was only instituted just shy of 100 years ago in 1925 and uh, in the aftermath of the First War and amidst the rise of communism in China. So Pope Pius XI instituted the feast in his encyclical Cuis Primus, and it was first celebrated on Halloween of 1926. Now, as I mentioned before, the feast was situated on the last Sunday of October to show its connection to the Feast of All Saints and All Souls. And while the world was increasingly telling Christians that they must compartmentalize their religion and give their highest allegiance to secular governments, Pope Pius XI wrote the following. If to Christ our Lord is given all power in heaven on earth, if all men purchased by his precious blood are by a new right subjected to his dominion, if this power embraces all men, it must be clear that not one of our faculties is exempt from his empire. He must reign in our minds, which should assent with perfect submission and firm belief to revealed truths and to the doctrines of Christ. He must reign in our wills, which should obey the laws and precepts of God. He must reign in our hearts, which should spurn natural desires and love God above all things and cleave to him alone. This is all about Jesus being your personal Lord and Savior. But Pope Pius also said that there's more to the kingship of Christ than his personal lordship in the life of the individual believer. He said all men, whether collectively or individually, are under the dominion of Christ. In him is the salvation of the individual. In him is the salvation of society. He is the author of happiness and true prosperity for every man and for every nation. If, therefore, the rulers of nations wish to preserve their authority, to promote and increase the prosperity of their countries, they will not neglect the public duty of reverence and obedience to the rule of Christ. When once men recognize both in private and in public life that Christ is king, society will at last receive the great, great blessings of real liberty, well-ordered discipline, peace, and harmony. That these blessings may be abundant and lasting in Christian society, it is necessary that the kingship of our Savior should be as widely as possible recognized and understood. And to this end, nothing would serve better than the institution of a special feast in honor of the kingship of Christ. Pope Pius said, The right which the Church has from Christ himself to teach mankind, to make laws, to govern peoples in all that pertains to their eternal salvation, that right was denied. Right, so the right to teach, govern, and sanctify had been renied, denied by the Reformation, by the Enlightenment, by the rise of secularism, socialism. Then, he says, gradually the religion of Christ came to be likened to false religions and to be placed ignominiously on the same level with them. It was then put under the power of the state and tolerated more or less at the whim of princes and rulers. There were even some nations who thought they could dispense with God that their religion should consist in impiety and the neglect of God. And he's, of course, speaking about communism, which is atheist in nature. The rebellion of individuals and states against the authority of Christ has produced deplorable consequences, which all proved too true, uh, and eventually, of course, led to the Second World War. The Feast of Christ the King, then, was responsible, or was a response to the rise of secularism and indifferentism and atheism and communism in the early 20th century. 
But after Vatican II in 1969, Pope Paul VI gave the feast a new name, the Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, and moved it from the Sunday before All Saints Day to the last Sunday of the liturgical year. But the fact is that the Feast of Christ the King was not merely moved, it was replaced. In Calendarium Romanum, the document announcing and explaining the Novus Ordo calendar, Paul VI wrote, quote, The solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ of the universe occurs on the last Sunday of the liturgical year in place of the feast instituted by Pope Pius XI in 1925 and assigned to the last Sunday of October. See, the key words here are in place of, which is to say instead of. In Calendarium Romanum, Pope Paul stated that the corp, that uh, like co- Feast of Corpus Christi was being moved, or the Feast of the Holy Family would be henceforth celebrated on a different date because it's not a movable feast. But he says the Novus Ordo Solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, replaces the messages with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back. Okay, so what really happened in 1969 is that Paul VI replaced the Feast of Christ the King with the Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, which was a solemnity fabricated by the Concilium, right, the Novus Ordo Liturgy Committee under Annabale Bunini. Now, the two celebrations certainly have, you know, things in common, and, and but it's clearly not the same feast, just moved to a different Sunday. So what's different? Well, it's celebrated, first off, in a different liturgical context. Plus, it was given a new name and new proper prayers, which de-emphasized the social reign of Christ the King. Now, why did that happen? Well, the simplest answer seems to be that Pius XI's integralism didn't fit with the spirit of Vatican II and the spirit of the new liturgy. Integralism is, is a much abused term these days, but generally speaking, what it means is, you know, uh, integralism is the, the belief that your religious convictions should dictate your political and social actions. Can you imagine actually living according to the way you believe? Who'd have thought? All right, never mind, that's what's you know, what built Western civilization. But the new progressive paradigm is about abandoning the principle that the Catholic faith should be the basis of public law and public policy within civil society. Integralism in the liturgy is anathema to the progressivism and ecumenism of Paul VI's new order. Hence, the new feast no longer represents the original uh, meaning intended by the Feast of Christ the King. The solemnity of Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, is celebrated at the end of the liturgical year as a lead into Advent, which is traditionally a time to reflect not only on Christ's you know, first coming in his nativity, but also on his second coming. And Christ's reign, therefore, has been relegated to the end of time, presumably so that it won't interfere with the new paradigm regarding religious liberty or, or the prevailing secularist models of government. But what about all the saints over the centuries that upheld the doctrine that the church must not be totally separate from the state? You know, a couple of years ago on All Saints Day, um, Dr. Peter Kuznevsky, whom I quote pretty liberally on this program, uh, he posted um, a list of royal saints and blesseds. Okay, it's a list as long as your arm. And then he asked, does modern democracy 
have a track record of sanctity like that? Where, he asks, are the dozens of holy presidents and prime ministers and, and cabinet members and congressmen? Of course, to ask, to ask the question is to answer it. And then he says, it seems to me that the original Feast of Christ the King represents the Catholic vision of society as a hierarchy in which the private sphere and the public sphere are united in their acknowledgement of the rights of God and his church. Now, that vision was put aside in 1969 to make way for a vision in which Christ is the king of my heart, and he is, and the king of the cosmos, and he is, right? So uh, he says, of the most micro level and the most macro level, but not king of anything in between. Not king of culture, of society, of industry and trade, of education, of civil government. In other words, for such middling spheres, he says, we have no king but Caesar. Now, that might be a little extreme, but the fact is we live in a fallen world where all earthly kingdoms are doomed to failure precisely because they are earthly kingdoms. I suspect, you know, I'm a medievalist and consequently a monarchist at heart. And to quote Dr. Kosnevsky again, as we can infer from much, much greater antiquity and universality, monarchy is the system most natural to human beings. It is the system most akin to the supernatural government of the church. It is the system that lends itself most readily to collaboration and cooperation with the church in the salvation of men's souls. And that's because monarchy is ultimately patterned on the family, which is the nucleus of, of all human society. And he goes on, he says, two of the wisest men of pagan antiquity, Plato and Aristotle, maintained that democracy, far from being a stable form of government, is always teetering on the edge of anarchy or tyranny. Right now, he says, the prospects for Catholic monarchy seem, seem dim, to say the least, and I would have to agree. But remember, the first step towards a solution to a problem is admitting that you have one. And as Dr. Kay said, we ought to have the courage to admit that what we're doing is not working and that we're digging ourselves collectively into the deepest, darkest pit human history has ever seen. Compared to this, he says, I would prefer to take my chances on monarchy and aristocracy. And all of its checkered episodes, it still has a proven track record of sanctity and defense of the faith, and nothing else does. And I should point out that Christian monarchy, which Thomas Aquinas identifies as the best form of government, is not absolute monarchy, like the pagan Caesars, or, or what they tried to resurrect in the, during the Renaissance. Rather, Christian monarchy combines aspects of monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy. In other words, a state, uh, you know, a Christian monarchy, in the, like in the Age of Faith, embraced the principle of subsidiarity with a monarch as the head of state, but assisted by the aristocracy at the higher levels, like the county level, and then elected officials at the local level, and then the family at the most immediate level. Now, listen, I've been promoting the quest for Christian perfection, which is essentially Christian chivalry for decades. And that's because I believe that it is possible to cultivate moral virtue, even in the hostile environment of, of a vice-ridden secular society. I believe in the universal call to holiness, which is the real message of Vatican II, and that has been so badly corrupted by progressivism in the church. As Pope St. Leo the Great said, the devil is always discovering something novel against the truth. He is, you might say, full of surprises. Furthermore, I believe that the ideal of Christendom can and will be resurrected in the West precisely through the restoration of the Catholic Church. Don't know how long it's going to take, but while all this seems perfectly obvious to me, 
Many find it completely incomprehensible. You know, when I talk about these things, a common reaction is, oh, you can't turn back the clock. And not just my secular friends, but far too many Catholics uh, deem it impossible to realize the ideal of a restored Christendom, or even for the church to recover her former status in secular society because of the inevitability of progress. It would, they say, take a miracle. Well, I would ask, well, let me ask you, would it take a miracle to restore Christendom? Would it take a miracle to restore Christian monarchy? And the answer is yes, of course it would. Fortunately, I believe in miracles. Who among the early Christians who were living under Roman persecution, right, being thrown to the lions and, and being made into to living torches to light the, the parties at Nero's house, right? Who among them would have predicted the coming of medieval Christian? Who among them could have believed that such a thing as medieval Christendom was even possible? That the all-powerful Roman Empire of Jesus' day would give way to many sovereign kingdoms whose common thread was not an earthly emperor, but an, a heavenly king. And that earthly monarchs, who understood that they reigned by the grace of God, had as a first duty the protection and preservation of the Catholic faith. Yeah, the, the establishment of Christendom was a miracle, but it happened. And there's an axiom in physics that if a thing has happened, it can happen. In other words, if it can happen once, it can happen again. And that's no nonsense. Now, to, to close out our discussion on Christ the King, I'd like you to join me in the prayer, Jesu Dulcissime Redemptor, right? the act of dedication of the human race to Jesus Christ the King. Partial indulgence uh, for any time you piously recite the act of dedication of the human race to Christ the King. Any plenary indulgence is granted if it's recited publicly on the feast of our Lord Jesus Christ King, right? which is this coming Sunday, and and I believe that the that the uh, indulgence is uh, now granted on the day of the Novus Ordo feast as well, last October or last day of the uh, liturgical year, as opposed to the last day of October. And on either case, now you can find this prayer online. It's very likely if you have a prayer book that it's in there under the title "Act of Dedication of the Human Race to Jesus Christ King." And the source of the translation I'm going to reading from today is from the 1968 edition of the Incredian of Indulgences. Most sweet Jesus, Redeemer of the human race, look down upon us humbly prostrate before you. We are yours and yours we wish to be, but to me be surely, more surely united with you. Behold, each one of us freely consecrates himself today to your most sacred heart. Many indeed have never known you. Many too, despising your precepts, have rejected you. Have mercy on them all, most merciful Jesus, and draw them to your sacred heart. Be king, O Lord, not only of the faithful who have never forsaken you, but also of the prodigal children who have abandoned you. Grant that they may quickly return to their father's house, lest they die of wretchedness and hunger. Be king of those who are deceived by erroneous opinions, of whom, or whom discord keeps aloof, and call them back to the harbor of truth and the unity of faith so that soon there may be but one flock and one shepherd. Grant, O Lord, to your church assurance of freedom and immunity from harm. Give tranquility of order to all nations. Make the earth resound from pole to pole with one cry. Praise to the divine heart that wrought our salvation. To it be glory 
and honor forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. By the way, I said, if you prayed that along with me, and you're in a state of grace, you just earned a plenary indulgence, or a, a partial indulgence. But you may gain the plenary indulgence on when the feast is celebrated, whether you, you know, celebrate in the uh, extraordinary form this coming Sunday or in the extraordinary form at the end of the year uh, by saying it, reciting it publicly. And that can mean just with your family. So you can find this prayer and then pray it perhaps after your family rosary on the Feast of Christ the King. Okay, moving on. We have reached the halfway point of the Synod of Synodality 2023. And so far, the reports from the small groups have only disclosed the topics that have been discussed uh, you know, by these various uh, working groups. So it's kind of impossible to predict what may emerge from any document that the Pope will produce based on those discussions. And it's, it's kind of funny that I've seen pictures of the Synod in progress, and unlike previous Synods of Bishops where all are seated together for the main meetings and addresses and then break into working groups, um, you know, when they do the individual work, the current Synod keeps all the members of these various groups separated into their various groups at, at tables at all times. Paul Six Hall is just full of round tables, like a banquet or a wedding reception, even for the main speeches. Now, I've always hated that let's break into individual groups and discuss our feelings approach that is so common in, in Catholic formation classes. I think that's what's going to happen when you get to purgatory. Some angel's going to say, now we're going to break into small groups and discuss our feelings. Anyway, we'll talk about that and more when we come back with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, talking about how uh, the, the Synod on Synodality is keeping all the members separated into their various working groups at all times. Now, I remember when I studied scripture at Loyola Marymount University, it was a two-year certificate program with a year of Old Testament and a year of New Testament. And the funny thing is that a certain Mr. Johnny Romero, brother of a certain Mr. Jesse Romero, had taken the class in the previous cycle. And because of his active participation, especially asking uncomfortable questions, they actually changed the format the year that I attended. And I say the year, not the years, because I did not complete the course. You see, I signed up for a two-year course to be certified to lead Bible studies at the parish level. However, several weeks into year one, they announced that certification would now require a third year where your parish Bible study would be monitored by an observer to ensure that you were teaching at the parish level um, what you know the content that you've been taught in the course. Fortunately, I could not do that in good conscience because most of what I was taught was either nonsense or outright heresy or both. But I digress. Point is, the new format kept us permanently separated into small groups. So any influence of people you know, like yours truly on our fellow students would be kept to a bare minimum. Likewise, spoken questions were forbidden. Instead, any questions or concern had to be submitted on three by five cards so that the instructors could control the questions that were addressed before the entire class. Um, none of my questions were ever selected, by the way. Now, one wonders if the same kind of thinking is behind this decision to keep the various participants of the Synod similarly quarantined from the entire group. I don't know. 
Speaking of which, though, uh, so far the topics that they've discussed have included women's ordination and gender justice and blessing homosexual unions and other LGBTQ plus, uh, et cetera, et cetera, concerns, which, to be fair, must not be the only things they're talking about uh, and probably a minority of the things they're talking about. It's just that that's what generates controversy and controversy generates traffic on the Internet. So that's what gets reported. Now, more concerning to me was Bishop Overbeck's remarks about rejecting the need to reject traditionalism uh, because Vatican journalist Diane Montagna tweeted, I was not quite clear on what Bishop Overbeck meant in his response. So as soon as the briefing ended, I went up to him and twice asked explicitly if he meant we need to set aside apostolic tradition. And twice he responded, yes, this is what he meant. That's, and that is profoundly concerning. But there has also been some good news. There was a laywoman who received a, a rousing ovation for what was described as a profound and real speech opposing women's ordination. And uh, a Cardinal Perlin of the Vatican Secretary of State made a strong and clear defense of orthodoxy at the Synod, rather unsuspected and at the risk of falling out of favor with Pope Francis. Speaking of questions, though, uh, George you know, I, his name is spelled W-E-I-G-E-L. And in German, that's pronounced Weigel. And if he pronounces it a different way, I apologize. But that's what I'm going to, until somebody corrects me, that's what I'm going to say. So George Weigel posted an article at Catholic World Report back on the 18th, uh, like last week, I guess, called Questions to Enliven Synod 2023. And he says that, you know, first off, that the first session of the Synod and Synodality this year is going to be followed by another one. In October 2024, he says, quote, both aim to build a synodal church of communion, participation and mission, which is certainly a laudable goal. Now, so at, at, at the very outset, while I agree with almost everything else in his article, I have to respectfully disagree on this one because the word synodal is a neologism. It is a made up word with no traditional meaning. So building a synodal church might mean any number of things including changing doctrine via majority vote, which seems to be what people understand by it currently, you know, doing that rather than conforming to the deposit of faith. You know, the church is, is not a synodal church. The church is a hierarchical and monarchical church because that's how Jesus Christ established her. So a synodal church would therefore require a fundamental change to the churches founded by our Lord. In any event, Mr. Weigel says two weeks into Synod 2023, it has to be asked whether the Synod's methodology is conducive to serious conversation, characterized by the parousia, the frank speaking so often recommended by Pope Francis. Uh, the Synod of Bishops is an advisory group that meets from time to time to advise the Pope. And he notes that uh, the Church has held synods ever since 1967, which was two years after Paul VI created the Synod of Bishops. And he says, since that time, different methodologies, more open discussion in general assembly, more small group discussions, openly structured, they've all been tried and none has proven completely satisfactory. However, he says, what's particularly striking about the current synod is how closely micromanaged its small group discussions are. He says the working document includes 33 single spaced pages of worksheets through which the small groups are to make their way question by question in precisely timed and monitored, uh, precisely timed segments monitored by facilitators appointed by the Synod General Secretariat. Again, sounds very much like my scripture course at LMU. 
Now, whether this method of discussion management, or should we say discussion control, will prove an improvement, you know, over the previous synodal methodologies remains to be seen. The odds seem long to me, he says, and I heartily concur. Because his point is that this, this methodology raises the question of whether the discussions might be gingered up, you know, if the prescribed questions, which are largely defined by the secular criterion of inclusivity, were complemented by, you know, dropping questions of a more substantive Christian nature into the conversation. Happily, he says, such a set of questions was suggested by Archbishop Joseph Neumann of Kansas City. He says, which I found in a statement by the International Catholic Jurists Forum published in the National Catholic Register. Now, Mr. Vargas paraphrased those questions. I will in turn add my comments. So, does the Church of Christ call for repentance with which the Lord began his... Sorry, one more time. Does the call of Christ for repentance with which the Lord began his public ministry, necessarily create an ecclesial culture of exclusion. See, we're always hearing about how the church needs to be more welcoming, how we must welcome everyone. But that's nothing new. Church has always been welcoming. What's new is the idea that our Lord's admonition, repent and believe in the gospel, is not inclusive. And therefore, we should welcome people into the church without asking or without making any such exclusive demands on them is that they repent and believe. He next asks, how should we understand the Lord's clear, countercultural, and challenging teaching on the permanence of marriage or on the consequences of undisciplined appetites? Are these teachings alienating? Might they be liberating? And if liberating, what do they teach us about the true meaning of freedom? You know, I mean, for me to ask this question is to answer it. Jesus himself clearly stated, I have come to give testimony to the truth. Those who are of the truth hear my voice. I am the way and the truth. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He did not say that he would set us free from the truth. The next question, many followers left Jesus after Jesus told them, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Um, given that abandonment, right, these people that left, and the Lord's follow-up question to, the, to those who remained, do you also wish to leave? Can we say that radical inclusivity was not the Lord's highest priority? <laughs> you know, obviously not. Actually, says, can we say that radical inclusivity was the Lord's highest priority? No. As Jesus himself said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. That's pretty exclusive. Father asks, why should Catholics be surprised or made uncomfortable when so many people in Western societies reject the church's moral teaching on the life issues, on the true expressions of human love, and on our created givenness as men and women? Does rejection of those teachings mean that they're wrong? Those teachings are surely countercultural today, but doesn't their rejection call us to more effective communication of the truths the Lord has given to the church? Answer, yes, of course. That's what evangelization is. Sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel in and out of season. The gospel seemed every bit as strange and demanding in the first century as it does today. Every bit as countercultural. But as St. Paul said to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then the Greek. The gospel is for everybody. 
And then he asked an even better question. He says, what's drawn people to Christ and the church over two millennia? An inclusivity that rendered the church indistinguishable from the ambient culture and surrounding society? Or a mode of life that, while countercultural, was manifestly more life-affirming and ennobling? Well, let St. Paul answer again. We proclaim Christ crucified. This is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Finally, he says, it is certainly true that everyone is welcome in the church, as we hear so often today. But mustn't that, se that sentence be completed? Such that it's clear that everyone is welcome in the church on Christ's terms, not their own. In our work of evangelization, how do we communicate that with compassion, recognizing that we are a church of sinners who often fall short of the mark, but who have no authority to change that mark? The answer is the same way Catholics have for the last 2,000 years. I'll remind you that the Catholic Church is the only institution that was around 2,000 years ago that is still around today. And the reason is not that the Church compromised with the prevailing culture, but rather the opposite. It is only fidelity to the deposit of faith left to the Church by Christ and the Apostles that have kept the Church a going concern and a beacon of truth. We hear a lot these days that evangelization is not proselytization. But sharing the good news means explaining the good news and its moral demands. Yes, explaining it with charity and with clarity. Because if you don't, it isn't evangelization at all. Lastly, George Weigel says these questions should promote a synodal reflection on why John Paul II was such a powerful evangelical magnet for young people. It was not, he says, I suggest, because he pandered to them. It was because he was transparently honest about the demands of the gospel, and because he challenged young adults and the rest of us never to forget that the grace of, God's makes, grace of God makes spiritual and moral grandeur possible in our lives. If the call to inclusivity means blunting the sharp edges of the gospel, then that call is not a work of the Holy Spirit. And that's no nonsense. All right. As usual, thank you so much for being with us this week. i uh, got a lot of great stuff coming up next week as well. going to talk about the God of surprises, among other things. So please join us then. In the meantime, I want to say thank you so much for listening. I want to encourage you to go to vmpr.org to see what we are up to, all the, the upcoming events and conferences and so forth that you can be a part of. Also there, you can make a donation. We, uh, we definitely crave your prayers. We also need your financial support to keep going. Uh, so until then, just I want to say thank you so much for listening and may God richly bless you and your family.